My name is Chess, and on my show, Plus 7 Intelligence, we talk about how games impact people. Listen to a mental health counselor explain how he prescribes games for his clients, or how a game designer takes inspiration from games to launch her tech startup. Listen to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are now entering the Podglomerate. When you posit the idea of ultimate freedom, that you, in a sense, can do anything, um, what you bump up against is your own moral compass and your own boundaries. Welcome to Writers You Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I am Kyle. What's going on? It's another Tuesday. You know what? I bought my first adult suit. What do you mean adult suit? Were you wearing like a, ch- a child suit before? I I may have been wearing um, like a child's extra, a husky child's extra large. So Oshkosh Bagosh <laughs> with overalls? Yeah, and uh, elbow pads. Oh, that's good. You need those. You fall yeah. sometimes. I feel like an adult is the moral of the story. What makes me think about it is... Uh, we talked about what freedom might look like to Doug, what absolute freedom might look like, and I had imagined myself in a suit in the scenario that I was picturing. But I got to tell you, on the other side of this purchase, mostly I just regret owning something that costs so much and provides so little. Well, I mean, it provides the feeling of being a badass. Maybe that's what freedom is, Jeff, is just regret. <laughs> well, yeah, always. You, you mentioned Doug, though, and, and our listeners don't know who Doug is. I'm sure they do. They see it in the name of the episode. But just for those of you who haven't, our guest on the show this week is Doug Stanton. Jeff, how do you know Doug? So Doug is the author of a book called The Odyssey of Echo Company, uh, an, an amazing writer. And also, I think for the first time in the history of the show, he's a current client of mine. So I just want to put that out there you know, for whatever disclaimers need to be there. But in any case, uh, you know, the reason that we have Doug on is not because he's a client of mine, but because he is a writer that I admire and, and I pushed on Kyle and Kyle really enjoyed his stuff too. Doug is the author of three nonfiction books. Uh, one of them is In Harm's Way, which came out 15 or so years ago about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It's really interesting because they just found that ship this summer. Uh, he's the author of Horse Soldiers, which is a book about horse soldiers in Afghanistan, and it's being turned into a Jerry Bruckheimer-produced film starring Chris Hemsworth, Michael Shannon, and Michael Pena. And most recently, and just a couple weeks ago, he is the author of The Odyssey of Echo Company, which is about the 1968 Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, and it's mostly what we talked to him about during this episode. And we also talked to Doug a lot about... Uh some of the more interesting aspects of his life on the road as a a journalist and somebody who interviews pretty big stars for profile pieces for pretty much every publication you've ever heard of. So it's kind of awesome to hear his stories because they're filled with just like all kinds of crazy shenanigans. But rather than explain it all to you ourselves, we're going to let Doug do the explaining. So you can find the Odyssey of Echo Company and all of Doug's other books at www.dougstanton.com. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, Doug. It's good to have you. Hi, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah. So you're here uh, ostensibly because you just had a book out uh, called The Odyssey of Echo Company. It actually came out the day before we're recording this. Uh, You know, there will be a slight delay before this thing comes out. But um, 
you know, I wanted to talk to you about that. But before we get there, I want to bring up just your career in general, because, you know, you've written these three books about different wars. There's In Harm's Way, ostensibly about World War II, Horse Soldiers about uh, Afghanistan, Vietnam with the Odyssey of Echo Company. And I mean, you were never in the military, right? No, but my next book, uh, Jeff, is about the Thousand Year War. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it never ends. Yeah. Um, no, my next book's a musical comedy. Um, I was never in the military. Uh, my uncles were in World War II. My father was in the army between Korea and Vietnam. My two nephews are in Afghanistan. One's a bomb disposal tech. One's in special forces. Um, it's... I was working at Men's Journal Magazine and came upon the story of the USS Indianapolis, which, while it's the story of the U.S. Navy in 1945, when that uh, ship sinks after this historic mission delivering the atomic bomb, bomb components uh, to uh, Little Boy, which is dropped on Hiroshima. This is the ship that brings the atom into the 20th century, essentially, as in terms of uh, war fighting. Um, I, however, saw that story as a as a, a survival story, a story about young guys. I mean, Gus K. from Chicago is 16 aboard the ship when it sinks. So, Doug, can you actually tell us a little bit about what uh, In Harm's Way is, is about, in case anybody doesn't know? Sure. In July of 1945, uh, it, my book In Harm's Way is about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and the survival of the crew at sea for five days after they've been essentially lost uh, uh, to the world and, 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 and to the Navy. And as these guys float in the water, realizing, you know, it's like if you were to drive from, say, New York to Boston and you were to break down, there's only about three major thoroughfares you might break down on. And when no one comes looking for you, you realize that no one's missing you because otherwise they'd be there. So at that break point, about Wednesday of this five-day ordeal, the guys begin to make these very serious decisions about who they are and uh, and where they are, and uh, they react in all kinds of different ways. And for me, the story, um, while it's about the Navy and the valor of the ship, which sailed all through the Pacific, 10 major battles, 10 battle stars, um, in the end, what we know about it in history is that it, it, it was sunk, and these guys actually made it out alive. I have to add, though, 317 made it out, 1,196 went into the water uh, early, early Monday morning, and by Friday, 317 were still among the living. So the story is, is just that. It's about their survival and how it changed them. And then it's about the fight they made in Congress and with the U.S. Navy to clear their captain's name. It's a famous story. If you guys know Jaws, if you've seen it, and I, yeah. which, so there's the the classic scene with Quint, you know, mm -hmm. aboard the boat, and Richard Dreyfus says, "Were you on the Indianapolis?" And then and then Robert Shaw delivers that uh, fantastic monologue, um, yeah, which makes him a fictional survivor of this. So that that's you know, unfortunately, that's what most people knew about the the, the ship until. Um, until the early 2000s. The book came out then, and um, it was an unplanned success. Yeah, I mean... It, it's, Is there it's, any other kind? I mean, it, it's funny right. because they they actually just discovered the ship a couple of weeks ago, so you've been back in the, in the news cycle because of that, in addition to your new book. Um, 
which I'm sure has been you know pleasant in terms of book sales but uh you know so many of the survivors that you had interviewed uh are no longer with us now that they found the ship so it's a little bit bittersweet right uh, they're 19 alive there were 124 when i met them yeah but you know we we were talking before about how you kind of like got to the position of writing about you know servicemen when when you had never served yourself and it, it sounds like you were drawn to that because of these amazing stories that people were telling and you know also the fact that uh you know so much of your family had served it's true although i didn't grow up um thinking that i ever would i i wrote i've written about two things hollywood and a lot of actors you know when i was at esquire I, in men's journal i did profiles of clint eastwood and george clooney and Harrison Ford and Woody Harrelson and Sting and Kurt Russell and I passed on a bunch of others and I really enjoyed that I felt that they were small vignettes of uh, the look into um, the the life of someone I'm always trying to figure out how people are more like me than they are unlike me you know and that um, I think was appealing to the reader and to the editors because I never treated these quote famous people as famous and I always tried to do something with them that was an activity and I think in the same way when I approach these veterans, I try to figure out how they're like us or me. You know, what would prompt someone to enlist? Um, it's, uh, it's, I, I can't say that um, it's been easy because interviewing the Indianapolis survivors is, uh, was a really heart-wrenching experience. Same with the Vietnam veterans as well. The Afghanistan guys were a little more, um, they weren't sanguine about it, but they uh, they were still in the midst of their careers and uh, were still actively deployed. So that was a different experience. So I was just going to go back while, we, while we're sort of on the subject to how you made the transition into, I guess the transition from celebrity profiles to sort of working into this narrative nonfiction. Right. Well, it really was the discovery of the Indianapolis story at Men's Journal in 1999. My editor called, and he he posed that to me the the, the assignment of meeting the real people of the USS Indianapolis. So essentially, meeting Robert Shaw's peers, if you will, although he's a fictional mm-hmm. character. And in fact, I told Sid Evans, my editor, that I thought it was apocryphal. He said, "No, no, they really do exist. Go to the Indianapolis on July 30th, the anniversary of the sinking." Uh, which was in July 30th of 45, and meet them. So I did, and sure enough, of course, um, they do exist. And they told me some amazing stories with holding styrofoam cups of coffee in the lobby of the Westin Hotel with grandkids running around, stories that were so deep and searing and revealing uh, next to the, you know, the, the fountain uh, in the lobby of a chain hotel. I, so I, I'm always looking for that moment when the mundane suddenly becomes the spectacular like just beneath the surface we all have the or kind of, there's this river of emotion and, and thoughts that we're having um probably if i was more evolved uh, more buddhist about it i wouldn't have that river it'd be a small placid pond but in my case <laughs> <laughs> it's a torrent yeah. and um and i think that's true uh for people uh who've suffered trauma um and uh, that is, they're easily able to access. It. So if you ask the right questions, you it's it's not hypnotism, but 
it's just funny the power of a question you know i met mike carilla now deceased um from chicago and i at this very first meeting of the survivors and i just asked him how he got off the ship when it sank just after midnight ships on fire it's going bow down the oil the, the sea is on fire with burning few, uh, bunker oil and man the story he told me was just unbelievable and it came from a very pure place in him and that was a signal to me that this was a real story that while Mike Carilla had gone to live a high functioning life in Chicago that somewhere deep inside of him still was this other place uh, where he lived and um, I thought that my job might be to reveal that place so that we might we might share in Mike's pain and also his joy and um, somehow be changed by it and was there a point when so when you went to interview these guys to meet the survivors was it always going to be a book or was there a point where it transitioned from an article for Esquire to a book right it was for Men's Journal Magazine I wrote 30,000 that's okay I wrote 30,000 I wrote 30,000 words for Men's Journal Magazine with no intention of really making it into a book I was hoping to get you know 7,000 words as a feature. Um, they published about 11,000 and I had this large manuscript and I talked to my agent Sloan Harris and um, we thought it was a book. It had a beginning, middle and end and I thought there was more to the story. And so I commenced pretty quickly to, to write the book in about a year and a half. And uh, it came out and um, when I say unplanned success, you know, it really was, I was following the, be the power of the story. I wasn't thinking in terms of a book. It's a very pure experience. So, so Doug, I want to actually ask you something about that because you've talked about this a lot in in the past about like the power of the story and who you like the the like epics that you're trying to tell, and it's just interesting to me because a lot of people will hear these amazing stories and they won't think like I need to tell it, I need to figure out a way to get this out to the rest of the world. So I'm curious, like, where that desire came from for you. Hmm. I think it might come from, you know, one of the stories that I tried to tell and wasn't able to tell successfully, and this is where I think this desire comes from, was the story of my great-great-great-grandfather, August Crokey, who sailed uh, from Europe aboard a, a, sh a ship, landed in the East Coast, migrated to Wisconsin with his um, bohemian family members, learned English, went back to New Bedford and got on a whaling vessel and for four and a half years sailed around the world at, at the age of 18 and then disembarked back in New Bedford and moved inland um, almost like a dis, you know, uh, carrying this oar over his shoulder uh, until he stopped in northern Michigan and homesteaded, which is how partially our family ended up here. I actually got convinced Men's Journal to let me go to Cape Horn. So I called the Chilean Navy uh, consulate in New York and got permission to hitchhike aboard one of their boats, which dropped my brother-in-law off, Tony Demon, a photographer, who got the story assignment too. And we, our job were two things. We wanted to camp on Cape Horn, which we did, which I thought was really cool. And then we thought we would try to walk to the tip of South America. And um, which 
sounds kind of fun. I sat in my office and looked at the maps and I called a guide in um, Argentina. So we're in Terra del Fuego. We're south of Patagonia. Um, and it looked very easy on paper. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've gotten, I've had some great experiences in my life because I just I thought, yes, I could probably do that. And um, the Chilean Navy left us off on the coast. So we camped out on the Horn, which is an island, by the way, as people may know. Got back to Terra del Fuego proper, and then the Navy dropped us off on the coast, and we were going to walk the rest of the way to the tip of the actual uh, peninsula, the continent peninsula. And he, he, the captain handed us a GPS at the time as we got off the ship, and we said, what's this for? He said, we'd like you to take waypoints along the way, if you don't mind, because we don't have a lot of great maps for this area. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> and our, we'd hired this guide online... <laughs> This guy, this guy online, and he, we, we ended up calling him Super Trekker because um, he was like the, he, he just wouldn't stop walking or trekking, and he finally about after a day and a half, he looks at us and says, "You guys were really you you you're not really trekkers, are you?" And we're like, "Well, we're <laughs> trekkers, but we didn't know we'd have to walk a day and a half and then turn around and walk back a day and a half because we run into a dead end." You know, I mean, it was just, it was like, it was like, he had assumed because I had emailed him from my home in Michigan that I would like to walk to the tip of South America, that I fully knew what that meant. And I assumed since he said yes, that he, that it was completely possible. And um, here we were, but I have to say... (laughs) Walking this terrain, you ever um, the show The Adams Family that was on once? There was a character named Cousin It, and mm-hmm. um, Cousin It was like uh, a walking um, hay bale. You know, it just mm-hmm. you you couldn't see cousin. But the entire terrain of the uh, of this tip of South America looks like uh, a thousand Cousin Its just lined up, and you have to walk over them, like step on Cousin Its head, and then jump to the next Cousin It, and then you'd fall <laughs> off and kind of end up in this peat bog. And it was like unbelievably both exhilarating and just the most frustrating experience. And we camped and we fished and there's nobody around. I mean, I've walked in places, I'm sure, where people hadn't stepped. I mean, why would they? Uh, For, uh, who knows, decades. And these rivers are just there. And I'm always struck when I'm in a place like that, coming around to Ben and I see a river and it's there. And I always try to think, wow, this river is here. I could be in Michigan not seeing it. And if I wasn't seeing it, it would still be here. Uh, and so I'm having this sense of like dual uh, parallel realities going on, which we could get to later. It's kind of an epiphany right now, as I said, about perhaps why I'm doing um, these books about combat. Um, because while we're living our lives uh, yeah. in one in one plane, there's an at that very moment, there's another complete kind of counter narrative going on. And yet they're existing all on the planet at the same time. And I think my job as a writer and my curiosity as a writer, Jeff, because you asked earlier, is mm-hmm. to really figure, to jump from one uh, universe or one plane to another. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because you are, you know, kind of a dying breed of writer that is actually able to... Uh, 
you know, basically get a magazine to pay for them to write these amazing features that like requires them to meet incredible people or travel to obscure places. Uh, you know, nowadays, if you become a journalist, most of the time it's like, you know, writing for a website and, and getting as many out as you can in a, in a day. So, right. I mean, are you noticing that change? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I actually entered magazines during its, I think it's one of its brightest golden ages and it doesn't exist anymore. Um, my expenses for a piece I wrote about John Mellencamp, um, uh, you know, exceeded my fee by a factor of six. And I just, <laughs> I just had a credit, wow. I just had a credit card and Bill Tonelli, my editor, you know, and Terry McDonald, the editor in chief, uh, you know, I didn't even call into the office, you know, Mellencamp would say, do you want to come to Carnegie Hall and watch us rehearse? I'd say, sure. So I just book a flight and then hang out for a week. And then do you want to come to Hilton Head? Sure. So we'd go to Hilton Head. And, and it was just, I'm so lucky for that. Uh, the weirdest experience of this, and this is another story I had trouble telling. Um, I got a call one day from my editor, Bill Tonelli. Uh, and if he's listening, uh, uh, <laughs> this is, this story is all about Bill, but I wasn't smart enough at the time to see it. Um, he calls up Stanton. He's from Philly. Uh, what are you doing? Um, nothing, Bill. I'm probably going to mow the lawn. Uh, how would you like, uh, how would you like a credit card and a rental car? And your assignment is you can go anywhere you want in the United States and just write about what it means to be free. And I'm like, um, <laughs> cool. Gee, I was going to, uh, take my kids to, uh, daycare tomorrow um uh can i call this back he goes well no 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 by the way you can't tell anybody you're going to do this you just got to get up and leave in the middle of the night <laughs> and the piece was called taking a powder and uh and thank god it's not available online um and i'll tell you why in a minute um so um i you know i said yes and I even agreed to Bill's caveat that I not tell anybody, including my own wife, Ann Stanton, who's a reporter as well. So I'm like getting a rental car and I'm getting maps and I'm thinking, so, okay, guys, just this is, this, I'm now the editor. You get to go anywhere. Think about it for a moment. Where would you go? You, there, there are no rules. He, I said, well, are there no, no rules, Doug? If you get arrested, uh, well, Maybe that'll be a good story. Um, and so, did, did, it, did it have to be in the United States? Well, I think just for terms of a rental car, a rental car, and the, yeah, I mean uh, that was the easiest thing because it. it wasn't supposed to take months to do it either. But you know, the United yeah. States is big. I mean, um, mm -hmm. so I mean, I'm in the middle of it essentially. So you know, every poor sap thinks, well, if it's going to, if it, if it's adventure, it must mean Mexico. So <laughs> I, I headed, I headed west. I headed west oh, boys. And, um, just driving just out of my mind. I mean, I would just be driving for eight hours and then, Oh, I think I'll go North now. And then I'd be in South Dakota and then I would, uh, go through Montana and visit my sister. And then I, I think I headed down through the White Mountains in Arizona and finally found myself uh, in the border town in uh, New Mexico, um, whose name I can probably have blocked. Um, 
I, I know that I was in trouble. I went to the coffee shop for breakfast and they were selling at the counter um, histories of shootouts in the town. Um, oh. uh, yeah, uh, closely related to Pablo Escobar because it turns out it was a big drug uh, area. And I hung out in Marfa before Marfa became cool. And I was really so sunburned and out of it. And I remember playing pool in the hotel in Marfa. Um, and these guys came up and they said, what are you doing? And, uh, well, I'm just, uh, I'm, I, I said, and this is what you don't say in Marfa back at that time. You don't say, well, I'm just driving around. I don't really have any plans. <laughs> oh, really? And <laughs> no I one said, knows uh, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, what, what do you guys do? Uh, oh, well, we're ranchers. And Kai looked down and they're playing pool and they're like, have no calluses, no dirt under their fingernails. They're wearing, you know, pressed jeans. And I realized, oh, these are either feds or DEA or uh, or Border Patrol. And it turns out they're Border Patrol because there's a huge blimp tethered out in the desert over the town, which is monitoring um, traffic across the border, both human and, you know, uh, and drugs. And so they just kind of shadowed me all night. And that was really weird. Um, and so I got this creepy, creepy feeling just about the whole, I started, you know, I was alone. I mean, I'm alone and, um, and, uh, just driving, drinking coffee, uh, listening to music. Um, and I crossed the border. Uh, I take a taxi across the border and I end up drinking in a bar, um, in a town with these two retired school teachers who have become strippers, um, in their retirement. Yeah. I said, what do you do? Well, we're retired school teachers. Well, slowly it emerges that actually uh, they have another life. And one of them lives across the border. And I said, oh, man, I realized we stayed too late. The the last taxi had left. And so they gave me a ride back across the border. And one of them had had too much to drink and she's driving. And she begins speeding about 80 miles an hour up to the customs booth. And um, and her girlfriend says, now, now, uh, Janelle, do not give these guys any trouble at the border. Not like the last time. I do not want to have any problems. <laughs> she goes, and then they're slapping each other. Like I'm in the middle of the front seat and they're like hitting each other across the front seat in front of me. I thought, oh boy, this is going to be bad. I don't know who they are. I don't know what's in this car. I can just see that like, this is midnight express all over again. So, um, so uh, <laughs> she screeches to a halt, you know, zoom, slams on the brakes right in front of the booth. The guy, it's like one in the morning. And he, where are you ladies from? And she goes, Mars. <laughs> it's like, he said, excuse me, we're from Mars. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm slapping my forehead. Her girlfriend's reaching over, trying to hit her now. And pretty soon he sees that this is trouble. So he, unlo- he we get out of the car. We have to stand by this stainless steel table. And then he lets the dog uh, sniff the car. And all the time I'm thinking, oh, my God, this this dog is going to find something in the hubcap, which is going to mean I'm going to jail. And um, and she's like egging the dog on like, good doggy, good doggy, go find the drugs, doggy, good doggy. It's like, <laughs> you shut up. And, and finally, of course, I'm standing here today. There was nothing in the car, but we got back in. And so before they dropped me off at my hotel, she says, well, I have to swing by the house. And so I don't, you know, and I said, okay, fine. The hotel's about six blocks away. And it turns out, so I'm standing there and she goes into the room and gets out a pistol. And, and we're, the house is like in a subdivision, but the, it's backed by the mountains, you know, and, 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 and some arroyo and desert and mesquite and cactus and, 
And she goes, you know what? I feel like some target practice. And so she walks out the back door <laughs> and starts firing the pistol off. It's like now 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, her girlfriend comes out and says, what are you doing? She goes, well, I'm just firing the pistol. It's tar- and uh, and, uh, and it, it, from there, it just, you know, I, I'm telling the story now. But this was this. I, what I'm trying to say is my article, I thought in the end, that oh my god Doug is this all you can do you've just become the biggest cliche on the planet you could have gone off to uh you could have you could have gone off and saw enlightenment but yet you're doing you're shooting pistols at midnight in a subdivision with two retired school teachers who are now strippers who almost got (laughs) you arrested at the border and um you know it it just it, it kept going and sometimes um when you uh, when you have a great story, you just have to tell it. Uh, and when you don't have a story, you have to write it. And I always felt that somehow that should have been a great story, but somehow I really had to write it. And I don't, I still to this day don't really know why, except if I'm really honest with you guys, the reality is I didn't like being free, not like that, you know? <laughs> and, and part of it was when I go back to Bill Tonelli, my editor, he was getting married so the whole, you know, beware uh, of your editor. He's sending me out like on some vicarious bachelor party uh, that he can't have, and yeah, <laughs> we're st- <laughs> and um, I wrote the piece. And to do the photo shoot, they f- flew in a photographer from New York to a little town uh, near me, which has its only forlorn. Uh, let's just call it Dancing Club, which is out in the woods in a a stand of pine trees surrounded by a chain link fence. And so we're going to do the photo shoot there, of course. And so I go in and everything is posed and and the uh, the the person is she's dressed in you know scantily and she's sitting in my lap and I'm just passing and I've done these photo shoots and they're boring and so I'm saying like, so where are you from? She goes, oh, I'm from Traverse City, Michigan. And that's where I'm from. And she said, oh, what do you do? Oh, she goes, well, um, I work at the bridal uh, uh, shop in town. You know, I sell bride's dresses and <laughs> things like that. She goes, yeah. And she, she turned to me and says, yeah, I just sold your cousin her her her, um, her bridal gown. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> I'm sitting here being filmed. And she sold my cousin her bridal gown. It just... It, you know, telling the story now is actually better than the one I wrote. So maybe I should go back and redo this because um, the whole the whole thing was called taking a powder, and um, which is an old term for like you know going out for a pack of cigarettes and not coming back. Mm-hmm. But the reality was I didn't want to leave. You know, my freedom actually was going to be found in raising these young kids, and that was the adventure for me. Um, but I wasn't smart enough to realize what Tonelli was up to. I mean. He gave me a lot of great work, and I'm not actually sore at him at all, but it's just curious the relationship between the editor and the writer as well. So, I don't know. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, I will say it's a, it's a very American story that you just told. Yeah, also, like... the, the entire time you were saying that, I was trying to figure out where I would go, and I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. With, with a few hours, I'm sure I could come up with something great, but... Just now, you know, I, I could not. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Mexico sounds good. You know what immediately yeah, comes to mind every, is Wyoming. Yeah, but everybody goes to Mexico. And, and but the thing is, is that as soon as you get there, you're thinking, oh, crap, I've got a credit card. I mean, you're not paying for this. Why don't I go mm-hmm. to, um, 
you know, I've never been to Rhode Island. You know, let's go to Rhode Island. I mean, wherever you're at, when you're like, when you posit the idea of ultimate freedom that you, in a sense, can do anything. Um, and what you bump up against is your own moral compass and your own boundaries. And uh, I found I found what mine were, which was that really I wanted that whole highway to arc back home. But um, I, I wasn't... It, uh, it it wasn't my idea of freedom to be honest so i uh would probably go to the badlands or something and just go to rei or something and buy all of like this new hiking gear but but in any case i mean yeah but what would you write it's... about jeff okay so so it's day seven <laughs> yeah day seven <laughs> Which actually looks just like day three, and you've mm-hmm. got to write a magazine. See, the other people are is I'm writing a magazine piece, so something has to happen. Like, they don't want um, four thousand words on my um, on like my, your experience uh, with like a, yeah. a certain tent or something. Well, I don't know. I, I, it's funny. I, it's speaking of men's journal. I, uh, I never even came close to getting this assignment, but. I went to Peru last year and spent 10 days trekking uh, on the, the Salkantai Trail, which is like through this amazing valley in the Andes, uh, ended at Machu Picchu. And and I have a friend who's a men's journal editor who uh, said, you know, hey, you should pitch me and, and, you know, maybe we can pay for the trip or something. And I mean, that was my opportunity to come up with brilliance. And the best I could do was, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going with a bunch of friends and I'm not going to use my phone for a week. What does that sound like? So. Right. I mean, it's great for you, but it's part, you know what? It, it's not you're an interesting fi- story. Right. You're helping me figure it out because it's not an interesting magazine story. It may mm-hmm. be really important to you. Like, look at the Chris uh, McCandless story that John Krakauer wrote in um, Into the Wild. You know, that story is interesting because Krakauer told it. Um if McCandless, if he had told it, it, it would be totally different. But it's maybe we need that. Um, maybe we're what we're really talking about. Who's the author of our lives? You know, in some ways, my editor was being the author of the story. You know, go go anywhere. I think, um, and the story I wanted to tell right then was not of a road trip. It was actually of being at home. In the Odyssey of Echo Company, one of the themes is. Uh, who is watching these things happen to these young men in 1968 during the Tet Offensive, you know, a turning point in the Vietnam War? Who's watching them? Same way with the Indianapolis survivors. When they're floating in the ocean, who's watching? Dr. Haynes from Manistee, Michigan is burying the dead. Um, you know, it's you've been floating in the, in the water for, let's say, uh, 50 hours. Uh, all kinds of people are expiring around you. And so what propelled him to go forward and continue to try to treat the wounded and also then bury the dead with the saying of the Lord's Prayer? Um, in fact, he'd said it so often he couldn't—he could not go to a church and hear that prayer for the rest of his life without breaking down into tears. Hence, he didn't go to church. So, but Dr. Haynes at that moment thought perhaps only he was watching, but that kept him propelled forward. I think in my own road trip, I you know now I think about it, I don't I don't know who was watching, um, and perhaps I, I perhaps I wasn't being introspective enough or self aware enough. In this in the Odyssey of Echo Company, same thing. This stuff is happening. Who's letting it happen? You know and what and why is it happening? 
and um, that's what I'm trying to write about. So, there's a similar theme there. It's it's the 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 call answering the call of the external, right? To leave your your zone of comfort and go out and find something that you wouldn't otherwise have found without that external force pushing you. In the case of the the road trip, it's your editor who's trying to live a life he's letting go, right? And then for the Echo Company in Vietnam, it's communism. I guess. <laughs> well, they're politics. Well, well, I mean, yeah, true. That's interesting you say that because it's really their family. It's a sense of uh, what it is you're supposed to do as an American in these times. And so those things are external forces pushing on them. Um, once they land in country, and this is some of the vicious fighting of the war, 16,000 Americans are killed this year in 68. And the book is really a closely observed... Um, I think emotional portrait of you follow them all through the, you follow them through the combat, you know, the things that happen and, and how they happen and what that feels like. But ultimately it becomes this other quest for them to really get home. Maybe I'd like to write about people who want to get home. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, in some ways I think of Stan Parker and Tom Souls and Paul Sedano and other guys like that. You know, I think of them, I think of that, I think of them being 18 and the helicopter landing in northern South Vietnam. You know, it's say dusk. The rotors are beating, the grass is being flattened down. They have no idea. They've never done this before. And that first step they take off the helicopter into that soft soil is in some ways the very first step they're going to be taking home. You know, after that moment, it's all about somehow getting out of this and coming back. And um, so, that's interesting. I had not thought about it that way. Hey Jeff, guess what time it is? Nine twenty-three p.m. It's advertising time. Oh hell yeah! It's time to talk about vitamins. Yeah, let me tell you, the only time I really talk about vitamins is when my doctor tells me that I'm so vitamin D deficient that uh, it might actually warrant a trip to the emergency room. Your doctor hasn't actually said that, has he? No, but he did threaten uh, to put an IV in my arm the next time I was there to make sure that I had actually gone outside and gotten some sunlight. It must suck working in a cave. I work in a cave. There are no windows. Well, boy, do I have a solution for you. Uh, can I can I solve my problem in my cave, from my cave? You sure can. So if you go to takecareof.com, you can take a quiz to get your personalized vitamin recommendation. You can literally say, I want more energy, I don't get enough sunlight, I'm sick all the time, and it'll give you your own daily vitamin recommendation. They'll send it to you in a nice customized package. And right now, thanks to the great audience that we have for writers who don't write, you can use offer code WRITE, W-R-I-T-E, to get 50% off your first month of care of. They don't even care that you live in a cave. Oh man, this is going to be... Do you think they have something that will allow me to avoid leafy greens entirely? I mean, I, I'm sure that they do, but I don't... <laughs> Are we there yet? <laughs> Has science saved me from salads? They are expensive nowadays. I mean, you quite literally told the story of the, the men that were in Echo Company. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very close third-person narrative, but it you know kind of read like it was you telling the story from first person, which I know is not the case. So I'm, I'm curious, like, about your actual process. Like, I know you have a ton of research. Your bibliography is, you know, 20 pages long. Uh, 
you have all of Stan Parker's notes, but I mean, I guess, why did you choose to tell it the way that you did? Hmm. I don't know. I see to me, that seems completely natural. I don't see the, how it could be different, you know, um, given, uh, given the tools that I, that I have before me, which is, which was a very brave, uh, willing people interested in talking to me. So perhaps I, I mean, I, I'm a little eager, I guess. And, um, and just by interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and asking questions and, um, you know, what color was the can of peaches? There's a scene that's key in the book. Um, I don't know, Jeff, I think you just, if you do that dive into the real, um, it seems real. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in voice. My friend, Michael Paternity, who's an author I admire immensely, um, his collection of books, uh, Love and Other Ways of Dying, that appeared in GQ, I think are really gems. They're literary gems. And if you read a story like The Man Who Sailed His House, um, that's it's a third-person-centered um, um, piece of nonfiction, but it's told completely from the gentleman's point of view as he's floating on his house, which has been blown off its moorings and into a tide. And uh, that, I don't know. I, I'm not answering the question well. I just, uh, I mean, how I else could it be written? Yeah, no, I think you are. It's just, you're right, because I don't really see any other way that you could have done it. But it was just really interesting to me because it, it's, and maybe it's just like a, a, an affirmation of how good you are at writing. But it didn't really seem like... I mean, you were only present in the writing when you purposely inserted yourself. And it was really interesting for me to read it that way because most third-person stories don't really come across that way. Right. I've never been in my own writing, um, except a few magazine pieces. I did yoga once with Sting at the Ritz, and guess what the piece was titled? <laughs> yoga with Sting at the Ritz? <laughs> yeah, and the whole piece was about him doing a set a series of poses told in the present tense and i was there trying to do them of course and uh being the i was being the uh the he was being the straight man and i was providing the humor but i was in that piece because um you know I, i just was you found that a lot in some journalism when the celebrity profile had heyday if you didn't have a great story you had a lot of attitude and snark you could kind of get away with that and that meant you were often using yourself as a foil but in um, in in harm's way in horse soldiers, I'm I'm of course not in the book, but I am in Odyssey of Echo Company at the end, and I think it's a difference for me because I also thought that the book was an active witness, and conscious witness that one of the things that was very moving was just the just the act of listening to the people of this reconnaissance platoon part of Echo Company tell their story. You know, sometimes we think that we have to react to everything, especially in the world of social media and so on. I mean, it, you, you know, something is posted and, and it doesn't, you're not really existing in its realm unless you react to it. Um, and that, that, I mean, in some ways, that's not often a necessary gesture. What I found with these guys is that they just, they were very appreciative of just people listening to them, acknowledging their presence. It's like, 
when you have um, a close relationship with someone just to be in their presence and you don't have to fix any problems, but you just have to be uh, among the problems. And uh, in that way, that's why I think I'm at the end of the book. I won't give too much away about the end, but there's a big moment that kind of changes everything for these two guys, Tom Souls and Stan Parker, and the way they feel about, you know, the last 40 some years of their life. So, so there's, there's one of the things that I always wonder about when it comes to narrative nonfiction is that uh, I remember reading you did a lot of, or, and you just said you did a lot of research and a ton of interviews for this book. What happens in terms of writing such a close perspective on the story when you get conflicting accounts from the people who were there? Does that, like, how often does that occur when you hear one thing from another person and have to go back and confirm it from another uh, who says something different? Well, you just, that's, you know, that's what, that's what news reporters do all day long. You know, they go, they talk to their sources and, and they have, and with an editor, they come up with um, what they seem is um, the plausible truth. In this case, uh, if two guys would say it was raining and three guys said it wasn't raining, then I would try to find out if in fact it was raining by just going to other records and means. That's kind of a simple example. Mm. Um, um, if they had um, different accounts of things, uh, for instance, there's a there's a scene where um, one of the young platoon members is accidentally shot by one of their own, and it's I put that at the beginning of the book. It's a very moving scene because it changed everything about the way they th- they realized that they were in this for real, that they had just arrived in Vietnam and here this thing had happened in their own platoon. And but a lot of guys saw it differently. They swear mm-hmm. that uh, the young man holding this rocket grenade launcher in his lap, he was sleeping, and he had his finger along the trigger, um, and he was startled awake by another guy in the platoon. And when he did so, he squeezed the trigger and shot himself in the face. Another guy swore that he saw a soldier pick up the grenade launcher pointed at the guy sleeping in jest, you know, horsing around, as they say, Mm -hmm. and uh, squeezing the trigger, not realizing it was loaded, and he shot him that way. And what the best thing you can do as a writer is to put both versions in, Mm -hmm. because the fact that people can agree is actually also part of the story. Um, And in some ways, they're all true, because each man swears that it's true. of course they're not, but as the reporter, you're being honest with the reader by saying, this is how Jerry Austin saw it, and this is how Stan Parker saw it, and um, uh, that that is one way uh, that is one way to address this issue. Another way, of course, is with footnotes. Ah. I mean, as banal as that sounds, you know, <laughs> uh, you know. Napoleon was only uh, Napoleon was uh, four feet nine inches tall or something. Footnote: uh, Other historians agree that Napoleon, uh, Napoleon was actually over eight feet tall. And while this seems implausible, uh, some people <laughs> believe it very deeply. And uh, so then yeah. you, you, you know, David Foster Wallace did that very well in those very manifold footnotes that became somewhat popular. Uh, and I think that was one way to acknowledge that the truth, in some cases, um, was manifold. Yeah, the, the, the question comes from 
actually the Detroit Free Press profile that I read of you where you mentioned that the story had to be uh, fact-checked by Parker, um, who describes himself as a military nut. And I just wondered what the reckoning was like for things that he may have remembered differently just under the stress of battle and all these moments that were literally breaking these men down. How the, how the memory of that event might change even over time. Well, the thing, yeah, you have to, if you've done this enough, um, the, the thing I knew for certain about Stan is that since he was a command sergeant major uh, in the U.S. Army and had been a career soldier, and being a command sergeant major is um, it means that you are the command sergeant major, that that you have a grasp of all things um, under your pur- purview. Your your senior officers, um, of course, are above you. But so Stan it was clear to me was never um, uh, um, he he was never one to conflate or inflate, and so I knew that about him just professionally. Um, he read the book because it turns out in some ways it's a biography and talking with my editor and other people and it just seemed that in order to make sure I didn't have him be born in wrong years or moved to the wrong town and it was so closely observed of his life that um, I told him he may do this but he could he could come in and look around the house but he couldn't you know it wasn't his job to change the painting uh, on the walls or the or the carpeting it was really a matter of making sure the walls were square and true and he did not ask for anything to be removed um, uh, or or changed Um, in fact he gave me more information that was more um, I think that was uh, that was disclose more of his own character and his own thoughts and feelings. In fact, the things he gave me made him seem more vulnerable. Um, so I, uh, I, I hope I'm answering the question, but it's... Yeah, I think that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> I, I have a couple questions, like a two-parter, I think. Why do you think Vietnam is having you know, the moment that it is right now? Uh, you know, Ken Burns' documentary is coming out, and it's popular. You know, he was interviewed on Mark Maron's show. Uh, you know, there's a, a handful of books. It, it seems like Vietnam is having, you know, this resurgence. And as far as I can tell, there's not any particular anniversaries. Well, there. I mean, there are actually, but they're they're quiet anniversaries. I mean, there are a lot of things that are coming up to their 50th year anniversary. For instance, the anniversary of the Tet Offensive in January of 18 will be 50 years. Um, but we, they're not, for a number of reasons that are really on point here, they're not a matter of national significance to us because I don't think Vietnam itself has been a matter of national significance in, in the way that I wanted, that I, that I hope it would be. But that I mean, we've talked a lot about how we all f- have felt about the war, or there's some great books about it, my job, I thought here, was to ask the guys how, how the war made them feel. It's a different kind of significance. And um, it's, it's popular because I think just of that, that calendar uh, that I just talked about. But also men like Stan Parker are turning 70. And in my experience with World War II veterans, and I think we'll see this with Iraq and Afghanistan, when the American male turns 70, um, he becomes a more open and vulnerable human being. Um, 
you know, I think it's, it's, it's a matter of time. You know, if you're 70, that means by 90, uh, you're going to have a very different life. So you've got, you know, how are you going to spend it? So there's that. And, um, and I, I think as well, uh, families and the 20 year you know 20 year olds and 30 year olds have someone in their life who is 70 and it could be a grandfather or it could be a father uh and that too makes it very immediate um and they're getting old enough to start to ask questions do you think it has anything to do with this rise in like war literature that we're seeing um no i well that literature is spon- sponsored, I think, really just by Iraq and Afghanistan and the tools, the awareness um, that I think social media and the, the prevalence of typing and writing and broadcasting and publishing electronically, you know, it's become so easy to do that uh, when you're overseas in your hut, you know, and you're typing on your laptop or you're typing a Facebook entry at home, that's that's the first draft of a book. That didn't, you know, that wasn't, a, certainly wasn't around in Vietnam. The guys in Odyssey of Echo Company are living out, of, uh, they're not even living out of their rucksacks. They're just kind of living in the dirt because they don't have them at one point. They don't have any food. They're, they're truly pilgrims and now just trying to survive this ordeal. Um, and so what you have is this whole body of literature today. However, Kevin Powers... Uh, 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 Phil Cly, Benjamin Bush, Brian Kastner, Brian Turner, um, Ben Fountain, you know, who, uh, although Ben didn't, uh, wasn't in the military, but writing um, these narratives about the more recent wars. Um, Tim O'Brien, you know, might be the last. Phil Caputo, um, those are Vietnam era writers. Um, but it's been a long time between the publication of those books and anything new about Vietnam, we've had a lot to do with Afghanistan and Iraq. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I only ask because we've had uh, Matt Gallagher, Phil Cly, and now Sarah Novit on the show. And I know Sarah's is a little bit different. She's not a vet, and, and it's not about an American war. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, it just seems like, and we've talked to Matt a lot about this in the past, that it seems like it's cropping up kind of more than ever at this point. Um, and this is just a war that, like, this year seems particularly relevant, but, you know, I have not seen much of it prior to this, other than, you know, the the middle school classics, like the things they carried. Yeah, I think I think it's somewhat of a, a, a formal thing in that the 50th is sponsoring or is prompting some of this. You know, it, that's attractive to editors and producers. And, and Burns certainly, um, you know, wisely was aware of it as well. Um, but, you know, it's true also that they're reaching 70. So it's, um, it's he, here's the thing about it where it's so interesting. Iraq and Afghanistan are, are in some ways so well documented, you know, in a way, in, in the very way that I'm talking about that we need to do again with Vietnam, you know, Tim O'Brien and Phil and and uh, oh, there there are a raft of others did this very very well. Um, let's say in the '80s, I guess or early '90s. Um, but we it, and so they they carried on that tradition when those like when Phil Cly writes uh, his book. You know, it's a very emotional, very gritty, very granular. Uh, 
a look at the uh, at the emotional journey of being uh, in combat, um, and that's uh, that's a great thing. But we haven't had that with these guys today, and it's because I don't think we know how to talk about Vietnam. I mean, do we really? Like, hey guys, uh, you want to do a show about Vietnam? Well, you know, what do we say? That ended badly, or uh, isn't that when? Um, LBJ decided not to run for re-election. I mean, it's not really even about the experience of having lived through the combat. It's about all these other things. And I tried to separate the war from the soldier in just the way, quite honestly, that Brian Kastner and Brian Turner and Benjamin Bush and Phil Cly have, did and have done in their books more recently, separating the war from the soldier. And, um, and uh, it's, if you don't finish the sentence, if you don't if you if you don't finish the story of Vietnam, I think a great you know it, it's a lot, it's a heavy freight for a generation to carry to kind of bury the most important thing that happened to them, one of the most important things, and and and, and honestly, guys, feel that they could never talk about it. So so imagine Phil imagine Phil coming back from where he was, and and realizing he could never talk about it. You know. You, well, you would never meet him in yeah. the first place. We we wouldn't know who he is. No, it's the truth. And and I mean, I after reading the Odyssey of Echo Company, you know, I don't I don't want to spoil anything, but the last section in particular is just kind of heartbreaking. Like there's a scene where years and years later, Stan runs into somebody at the gas uh, pumps and just says, you know, "Welcome home." And I mean, like I I had like a sharp inhale of my breath at that point because I was just. I didn't know it's what I was waiting for, right. but it's exactly what I was waiting for. Well, also the right. very like I don't I don't want to spoil it, but the very last scene is both crushing. I mean, it's crushing in its own way, right? It's it's such a stark mm-hmm. image to leave on, and it's also so. I don't want to say <laughs> it's 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 perfect in that it's crushing and uplifting and totally confusing all at the same time. Um, that there's so so much to say it, that just doesn't work. Right. Well, the book. I mean, I, I, if, are you talking about the very at, at the very end of the book? You know, it does end with a smile. You know, quite literally. There's you know there's this discovery that Tom Souls and Stan Parker make. Um, and in some ways, yes, the that's whole what book I'm talking was, about. Yeah. yeah, the whole book was tending toward that moment. I didn't know it, of course, when I was writing because. I'm writing in the present tense, which which was a new thing for me, um, and and I did that for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, as Colin Harrison, my editor at Scribner, said you, when I was trying to figure out something one day, and he said, "Doug, your job is your job is you don't have to solve all these problems; you just have to illuminate them." You know, that's what writing can do. Yeah, and um, that's. That's what I hope to do. Well, Doug, we bring writers onto the show to discuss, you know, one story that they've always struggled to tell. And you've hit on a couple so far, but I, I, I wonder if there's, you know, one particular story that you want to talk about now. There's a funny story that um, it's, it, it, it's not, it's kind of hard to tell. But it's hard to tell why the story has a certain stickiness to it. That it, and I'll tell you the story. It involves a, 
um, it, it calls a, a, a reunion, a classmate reunion, uh, one's wife and one's former girlfriend from earlier days. <laughs> Am I setting the scene? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so this fellow, uh, you know, goes to the reunion and he, he, he sees uh, this woman that, you know, that when they were younger had this, you know, fierce uh, first love kind of relationship. And um, they both feel this kind of free zone of, you know, oh, you know, we're not that we're not those people anymore. And and the uh, the quite the upstanding uh, noble gentleman has his two kids with him. And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> intensely noble gentleman. And, um, you know, they spend the day on the campus, uh, you know, doing all the, uh, the things you do at a reunion and with his kids in tow. Um, and then that evening, um, the noble gentleman's noble wife comes out, and they're all kind of now all together. And um, and she kind of picks up on this uh, this weird kind of like latent adolescent tension that's existing in her otherwise immensely mature and noble husband. And um, and as the uh, former uh, people once in young love are uh, saying goodbye the embrace lasts just a little too long and it's and the, and the noble gentleman won't take total credit for this either he was trying to disembark or disengage from it and um <laughs> however the drive home with the kids was rather quiet and um as they entered into the house uh you know the conversation turned to the day and the activities <laughs> and um and she asked, well, does this uh, person have any children? And, um, and uh, of course, you know, the, this, uh, the gentleman and his wife had uh, have three kids. And let's say their names are, um, uh, you know, uh, Dan and, and Janice. And uh, he says, why, why yes, uh, they do have two kids. Um, and... And by the way, their kids have been born sooner than the uh, former girlfriend's kids. So they this the couple here have named their kids more recently. And he says, well, yeah, I think she has a couple kids. Uh, I think their names are Dan and Janice. And, um, <laughs> and she, she's, there's this long pause that you could have like, that, that Charleston Heston could have parted the Red Sea in and walked through. And... Um, and she said, did you know this when we named our kids Dan and Janice? And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, uh, there are a lot of kids named Dan and Janice. I don't see the big deal. And my God, uh, the, it was like Joe Lewis and it was like Frazier and Muhammad Ali. I mean, it was just, it was just this, that I suddenly want, uh, okay. And that guy was me. Okay. So, yeah, in case I had fooled all of you. And, um, <laughs> but so so at this moment, I think a lot of the men listening are like, yeah, big deal. Dan and Janice. I mean, uh, what are you supposed to do? Um, because, by the way, the family had agreed on these names. It wasn't that he had picked Dan and Janice as the names for the kids at all. It's because they're common names. But somehow, in the back of his memory bank, he was supposed to recall that... Uh, uh, a girlfriend from years earlier had the kids with the same name and prevent his own family from naming themselves those names. And um, to this day, he is still just befuddled by this. However, when every single woman hears the story, she completely says to the guy, you're such a dope. 
why didn't you see this coming? <laughs> I don't know how do you I don't know how you feel, but uh, he walked right into that one. So it's not. It, I, I guess it's a hard story to tell, uh, honestly, because it, I feel so stupid kind of telling it. But also, I don't really get why it is such an uncomfortable story, and um, and why it when everything else in the world is kind of tending towards away from this, it seems that all the readers fall along gender lines. Like most women react one way and most men react almost just kind of, you know, instinctively they react to the story that, uh, I don't know, what do you guys think? How would you react? Do you think there's anything wrong with the naming of the kids? I mean, what would you have done? Uh... Would you just lie? You would just lied. Are you I mean, making us I, complicit? I was so, no, no, I was so stupid. Like I just thought, well, I mean, that's one thing I can say in my defense, you know, if I had thought that somehow this was uh, anything but benign behavior, uh, I would I would have you know told some kind of white lie just to get out of it. But I thought, well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's not like we named them. We're not like we named them, you know, uh, some uh, you know some made up name like Starfeather, and it turns yeah. out that uh, her kid was named Starfeather too, and so obviously the copying was. Uh, and, and whatever. I mean, beyond that, though, you know, if if you had said, <laughs> if you had said, you know, I don't want to name them Jonathan and Tracy because my ex girlfriend named her kids Jonathan and Tracy, you know, I, that would have been an even worse thing to say. Yeah, I got to tell you, it, I, I'm it, trying to work through the permutations now, and I don't think there's any way yeah, out. There's, this was always it's going a, to it's happen. It's a lose lose. It was faded. So, <laughs> so, so the question. So this the problem. This story actually, uh, the problem began like at some point. You know, like any problem that finally becomes a problem is like never began at that moment. It like began a couple of days earlier when like you did that one stupid thing. So and and, I, and to this day I can't figure out what the one stupid thing was except not lying and uh, just saying oh you know their names were Charlie and uh, and uh, and Lucy and yeah oh yeah okay yeah Let's, what's for dinner and just keep moving and um. But then I would have missed out on a great. Now we laugh about this. The, our own kids uh, think it's very funny, and uh, but at the time it was like I just couldn't. And you know, I hear you guys laugh. You know, you you're not being totally honest here. You're having a lot of thoughts about this very story right now. I can tell. Oh, absolutely. So it, I just got. I was recently engaged, um, and I'm trying to think through my own response in the situation. And the only thing I can think of right now is that if you had told that white lie with the advent of Facebook and social media, it would have come out and you would have made like, that's a much worse situation to explain down the road. I think maybe, (laughs) you know, when you go just, uh, you know, if things are boring around the house and you want to have a spirited discussion, just bring this up. Just do like yeah. one of those like what, would you what if done? games with your fiance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with your fiance. No, really ask her. And I yeah. swear to God, when I see you, I'll buy you a pizza because I think she's going to say, well, you idiot. Of course that you should have not named his kids Don and Janice. I will do just that. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll report back. I mean, I, I think the, the key here is that, you know, on my end, at least, I would be so clueless that I just wouldn't even like think it's an issue in the first place. So I wouldn't ever have to like decide to lie or not. Which sounds like it's the exact same situation you've been in. So I don't know. Yeah, it's only in retrospect that I realized the easy way out just would have been that little white lie. <laughs> yeah. Because I oh yeah right yeah like uh huh 
Um, yeah, well, you know what? I bet, I bet, you know, like, so I'm, th- I'm doing things like, yeah, well, you know what? She painted her house brown too, and we have a brown house. So what are you going to do about that? <laughs> Should I paint my house now? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, and then, and then she, and then she would have come back and said, "How do you know where she lives?" <laughs> yeah. Why the truth is, house? Yeah. yeah. The truth is, the weird thing was, is we had almost zero contact before this reunion, and haven't had any contact since. It was just this one node, this one moment where all this stuff came together. Yeah. I'm glad I'm laughing about it now. It wasn't a lot of fun at the time. No, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> We're beyond. Yeah, I don't imagine that it would be. <laughs> well, uh, everybody can pick up Doug's books at DougStanton.com or wherever books are sold. There's Horse Soldiers in Harm's Way and The Odyssey of Echo Company, which just came out. I, I recommend all of them. They're all brilliant. And, uh, you know, there's a movie coming out for Horse Soldiers in January. So check that out, too. And thank you so much for being on the show, Doug. Yeah, thank you, guys. A lot of fun. We want to thank Doug for joining us on the podcast tonight. Uh, It was great getting to talk to him. You can pick up his new book, The Odyssey of Echo Company, anywhere books are sold. You can find more of his writing at DougStanton.com and pretty much in any major publication you've read. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. We're on all the social medias. You can also find us at ThePodglomerate.com, which is a network of amazing podcasts that will help uh, teach you something. Uh, we, we launched two new shows this week, Remade, which is a 15-part uh, serialized fiction story of 23 teenagers who suddenly find themselves in a uh, very strange world and have to rely on each other for survival. Uh, we've made that with Serial Box, and we're really excited to be working with them. And we also launched uh, Two Girls, One Podcast, which is a show about the weird subcultures of the internet uh, launched by The Daily Dot. So check both of those out. You can subscribe to them wherever podcasts are sold. And uh, episodes are one week early over at TuneIn. Uh, In the meantime, we want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library for the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour. And Ben Sound at bensound.com for the music that you heard right in the middle of the show under the advertisements. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks. We're not entirely sure... Who is going to be on the show? Uh, but we promise it's someone good. It's uh, a surprise, even to us. Yeah. Well, we have we have actually like quite a few really really exciting guests that you guys are all going to love. It's so, all up in the air, but that's the way we like it. It keeps things exciting. In any case, uh, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Pod Glomer, a Sonic Universe.